Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Revealing the performance for writers is a necessity for them because you've got to be able to see behind the curtain in order to write the curtain. So for writers, they don't have the luxury of living with the performance or just the mask over a thing. You've got to understand the inner workings of people. Hello and welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. It's the holidays, and during the holidays, I'm trying to take a little bit of holiday, take a little bit of quiet, get some other things done, see some family. So I'm putting up some of my favorite shows from the past couple of years. This one I actually did just a couple of months ago, but I don't know. I loved it. Um, this was one of the ones where I walked in not quite knowing how the conversation would go, and I don't think I have ever enjoyed a single one of these more. This was my conversation with the remarkable science fiction and fantasy writer N.K. Jemison. She's awesome. She just won her third Hugo Award for Best Novel in a Row. No one has ever done that before. She was the first African-American novelist to ever win the Hugo for Best Novel. She's the first person at all to win three of them in a row. She won them for the Broken Earth trilogy. And I should say, the, the way I got turned on to her work was actually one of you. I got emails. And actually, when I looked back, I'd gotten a couple emails. But one in particular said, you know, you may like this Broken Earth trilogy. Um, you may want to check out this author, N.K. Jemison. And I did, and I could not stop. The books are so good. They deal with some of the hardest and most searing questions I've ever seen in fantasy work. Her other books are great. The Inheritance Trilogy is amazing. So I was a complete fanboy when I contacted her for an interview. But what was so great about this was she was willing to do something pretty unusual. She does world building seminars where she teaches aspiring writers how to build science fiction and fantasy worlds. And so rather than just do an interview, she agreed to do this live with me. Um, I guess not live. We were live when we did it, but you were not hearing it live. But she agreed to do it in person with me. And watching her work, watching the way she thought through the world, watching the way she thought through changing the world, it gave me such an appreciation for what is going into these books and 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 what this approach to thinking is. Her model of our world, I mean, this is a masterclass in thinking about worlds in models. Her model of our world is so sophisticated and deep that when you change even downstream small parts of it, she understands how it affects the whole thing. And it's by working off of that model of our world that she's able to create these amazing, entrancing, uh, enrapturing new worlds. So, I cannot recommend this conversation enough, obviously, because I'm putting it back up, but I think you all really enjoy it. So thank you to her for doing this. Thank you to you for giving us your time. Here is N.K. Jemison. 
Nora Jemison, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for welcoming me. So we are going to do something that I'm incredibly excited about today because I've never done it before. <laughs> we're we're going to build a world. Okay. So what is world building in the science fiction fantasy sense? Because it seems to me to be a term that has a, a, a specific meaning um, mm. that those who are not familiar with it may just not know. It does. Um, it's one of the things that I think makes science fiction and fantasy unique among literary forms, just because in a lot of cases, you're not necessarily doing a story that takes place in what we call the first world, which is our world, this world. Um, we're often using secondary worlds, uh, i.e. worlds that aren't Earth. Um, could be another planet, could be another reality, could be another universe. Um, you know, so it's somewhere where the laws of physics don't work the same way. There may be magic, there might be creatures or beings that don't exist in our world, um, could be strange environmental circumstances, who knows. But that's basically it. it. And it's a staple of science fiction and fantasy writing. And what's the difference between world building and mm -hmm. just writing a book or writing a story in a different world? I mean, it's not. There is no difference. <laughs> world building is the, the process that you use to come up with the world that you then write the story in. World building is not a substitute for writing a story. There are some examples of, you know, books that have been published that are basically nothing but world, like uh, Tolkien's The Silmarillion. I'm mangling the name. I always do. So that's basically a book of almost nothing but world building because it's the history of The Lord of the Rings. But, you know, for the most part, people aren't able to publish their books of world building. World building is just an exercise that you do to prepare for writing. And then you don't, uh, you, you know, in order to make sure that you are writing well, you don't then drown your audience in all of the world building that you do. You just use it to provide flavor and environment and effect for a lot of the things. And, and in some cases, it, it provides allegories for um, the, the problems that the people are dealing with that are very much like our own problems, but just at one remove. So this is something that before I heard it, I'd never thought about, but, but now obviously uh, seems more straightforward. Mm -hmm. but, but so when you're reading, uh, so when I'm reading a science fiction or, or a fantasy book, there is much more world built than I see. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Um, we... We usually kind of uh, suggest there, there's not like a convention on how to do it. Um, there's a, a running adage in the science fiction and fantasy writing community of, you know, make sure that you aren't inflicting uh, I've suffered for my art and now so will you on your audience. <laughs> um, so um, I usually tell people treat it like an iceberg. Um, and so you've got 90% uh, of it that you aren't going to see. And the 10% is, is the part that's above the water. So that's what we talk about. So you do these world building workshops mm -hmm. because you are a master of the craft. Well, thank you. And, and you have so generously uh, offered to do this live. We're going we're gonna to build a world we'll see live. see how this works out. All right. Okay. So where do we start? How do we build a world? Well, f you can start with the laws of physics. You can start with the universal level. Um, I usually depict this as a kind of inverted pyramid where we're starting with the macro scale and working our way down to the micro. 
So you can start as as high as the level of like how your universe is built. But then in a lot of cases that requires you to kind of understand things like, you know, how physics works. And I don't know that I necessarily want to get too deep into that. Um, I usually start with the Given planetary. how I did in physics, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I never took physics. So, all right. Um, but uh, so I usually start at the planetary level. And for the sake of doing uh, the workshop, when I usually present it to writing students at uh, writing workshops or MFA programs, the way that I usually do it is we start with the assumption of a world that is like Earth, um, a rocky planet, a terrestrial world, not a gas giant, for example. Um, I mean, you can do a gas giant. It's just that you need to know something about gas giants before you're going to go too far into that. And we usually are going to assume that we're going to be working with people who are like us. Um, you can run with completely different species if you want. I ended up in doing a workshop where we had a whole bunch of people that were sentient cats. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and we decided that the calicos ruled the world. And I, there was a whole bunch of stuff about like, you know, catnip, drug trade. Anyway, but so you started at the planetary level and we're going to assume uh, Earth-like planet. And so then let's start by letting you, since you're going to be my only guinea pig for this particular experiment, um, letting you pick how many continents we're going to work with. Well, I've always missed Pangaea. Oh, so you want to I'm just going to say straightforward All that right. uh, I just took a transatlantic flight and <laughs> I found that to be too long. <laughs> well, you'd still have to travel the same distance. It would just be over land. But wait, with that, no, that wouldn't be true. I mean, it would, you know, you're still dealing with the same amount of land mass. It's just that you aren't dealing with it spread out. So, right, I yeah. Mean, so my flight would have been shorter. Eh, I think. Maybe. All right. I, okay. Or possibly okay. I'm just, could, mm -hmm. <laughs> I am very bad with questions of geography. So I might just be getting this wrong. But, <laughs> well, but wait, I want to ask one meta question on the way sure. before we jump in, which is that, so one of the things I'm hearing from you is that the purpose of the, the world building project, mm -hmm. you need enough knowledge of the world to make mm -hmm. the world feel realistic. Yes. And so the further you get, if you're trying to, to work off of a gas giant, mm -hmm. what you need is to understand gas giants so well that when you are writing about them, you can explain them clearly and it will feel mm -hmm. natural. It will feel authentic to, to the reader. That That's the trick of that, I would imagine. Yeah. We understand the world that we live in innately because we live in it. Um, but what that means is that every single one of us is an expert in surviving on a terrestrial world with a nitrogen-based uh, atmosphere um, and a, and a carbon-based uh, organic system. Um, you know, so so we all understand this because we live it. Um, we aren't standing around having conversations with each other about, hey, nitrogen's pretty good today. Um, but uh, we do understand it. So the characters who are going to inhabit this world also need to understand it, which means that we do. So we've got to speak and think as the characters do, which means we're not going to be able to get that level of understanding. But it's basically that we need to think like the locals do and be able to speak like the locals do in order to make it feel real. All right. So Pangaea. Mm -hmm. All right. So we're going to go with uh, Pangaea. And, and one of the things that I think people did not understand about the, the various Pangaeas in our world, because there have been more than one, um, See, I'm learning things already. Yeah, we've had a, a we've had multiple supercontinents over time. Plate tectonics never really stops. So one of the things people never understood about Pangaea in our world is that it's gigantic, and that 
when the the Pangaea exists, the interior of it tends to be fairly arid because prevailing winds, carrying water, often can't reach all the way over into the middle of the, the continent. So let's, huh. yeah, so I'm just going to preface that, but then pick a spot somewhere in there where our culture that we're going to be uh, dealing with, our people and our culture are going to develop. So when you say pick a spot, what does that mean? Middle, uh, coast, by a river. Give me an idea of where you want to put this. So let's be uh, certainly not on the coast. Not on the coast. Um, Okay. Far enough that resourcing and water and so on are not impossible but Mm -hmm. are not – naturally advantageous. Mm, okay. So, so I don't want to be too deep in the interior, right? From right. what you said about the, the aridness there, you might just not want to be in the interior. But well, um, yeah, think about Australia. Um, yeah, I've never, I, I would not want to be in Australia. <laughs> yeah, the outback. Sorry um, to my know, Australian re- listeners. You know, I, I've always wanted to visit. <laughs> I don't know that I necessarily want to live there. But um, you have to understand that your audience is bringing to the table its knowledge of one world, this world. And they are going to relate pretty much everything that they know about this world to whatever world you're creating. So if you're going to create a big continent with an interior that that's not well, you know, watered with uh, rivers and things like that, and and probably wouldn't be because that far inland, like I said, there's there's no way for the water to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to end up with basically a giant outback in the middle of this continent. So if so, we were thinking about the Pangaea as the U.S., let's say Nevada mm-hmm. is where we're going, mm, right? right? Not the coast of California, but not Well, the so coast of California in. is pretty arid depending on where you are. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's true. Baja California, all of that. Yeah. So it's really a question of where it's located close to the equator or farther away. So is it in a temperate zone or is it in an intense sunlight zone? So so give me an idea of where this – is, this is the difficulty of not doing this in person. Um, give me an idea. <laughs> of where near the equator your spot is. Oh, we've we've now so quickly gotten into places where I'm going to betray <laughs> how poor my understanding of how of how the earth works is. Let's say we're working with a desert. Let's say a where desert. we're going. I have a a familiarity with um, the Nevada desert uh, okay. for various reasons related right. to my own life. Okay. And okay. So let's say we're working with a, mm-hmm. uh, a a desert, pretty arid region. Okay. Let's say, why don't we go with like the edge of the, the giant outback-like area? Great. So still temperate, still, you know, maybe a little bit of rain, but it's just occasional and, and sparse and, you know. Light sprints. Right. Um, I am not familiar with Nevada and, and desert-like regions. You're going to have to supply that information for me. I would have to do research to uh, to completely create this world. So imagine that climate then. You know, once we've picked a spot, then we, you know, once you understand what the climate is like. Why don't you describe that to me since I don't fully understand uh, Nevada. I've never lived there. So the the world is about to learn that I have gone to Burning Man a couple of times. And <laughs> <laughs> we're talking in early August, so it's on my mind. Okay, <laughs> So right. we're about to get a, a description of, of Black Rock Desert, okay. which would be a very bad place to set up a society uh, oh, in, in general. Wow. It's the okay. whole point. But um, it is one of the only places where I've actually seen a, an unusual world built, which hmm. is why it came to mind. Interesting. Um, out okay. of nothing, a, a world emerges. Mm-hmm. So dusty. Um, okay. A very fine alkaline dust. Hmm. Uh, the floor is cracked, and the more that you walk over it, the softer it gets. Hmm. So over the course of people inhabiting it, mm-hmm. it becomes more and more difficult to get around. Oh. Uh, there are frequent dust storms. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a little concerned about, again, building a world here. So we might hmm. want to move it because I don't think you can grow anything there. Um, well, no. Or, 
or is not that, anything significant. Is it like that only in August or is it like that all, all year long? It gets more rain at times. Okay. But my understanding is that this particular area mm-hmm. is – and again, I just could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not usable in that way. That It's always pretty bare. And when you say alkaline, that also makes me suspect that's why things don't grow there. So, mm-hmm. all right. Let's let's move maybe let's a little further a little south. <laughs> um, south of our proto-burning man um, zone <laughs> to a place that's maybe more – a little bit more like the Sonoran Desert. Um, Perfect. Which I did Sounds visit great. once. You know, there's not much rain there. There's uh, It's pretty arid, but there's a lot of arid adopted plants there. Even some of it is just, you know, typical stuff like tumbleweeds and so forth. But lots of beautiful rock formations. There was at one point in the past an inland sea there. So there are a lot of fossils in the area. And you can find, you know, evidence of old forests and things that no longer exist. You know, this Pangaea was not always a Pangaea. It came together. And at some point when that happened, it killed everything that that was living in that spot. So, all right, let's assume that our people, um, and we're going to go with human beings uh, for the sake of, of the exercise, but you don't necessarily have to, like I said, sentient cats. Um, can, but, can, we uh, add, can we add a prehensile tail? <laughs> uh, sure. Human Excellent. beings actually do have an adaptation for a prehensile tail. And sometimes Human people, beings just plus a prehensile yeah, tail. Yeah, sometimes people are actually born with tails. I don't know if they're prehensile, actually, now that I think I, about I, I believe I believe they're not, which has okay. always been a disappointment to me. Oh, yeah, But I, I watched sad. a fair amount of Thundercats uh-huh. when I was young. Oh, my God, I that's funny. They don't have tails, dis- though, do they? Am I wrong that they're that at least some of them? No, had, I don't think that. Am I just the, mixing up different like tigras and <laughs> thundras and? <laughs> I, you know, you're 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 calling me back to my 80s childhood, and I don't remember. And I've just outed myself in front of a whole bunch of nerds as not knowing Thundercats well enough. It's well, it's, pro- it's possible that I have actually. Oh, okay. I'm well, gonna yeah. I'm gonna call this up on my phone while we're talking <laughs> to just see. Yeah, I don't think picture. Thundercats have tails. Oh, this so is gonna I be, think this they is just got pretty spots, extreme. really. Oh no! I'm sorry. I'm I've I've totally nailed this. They definitely have tails. <laughs> the first uh, thing that I I did search Thundercats uh-huh. tails. Oh, interesting. So either I'm seeing fan art of them with tails, oh. or or they had tails. Oh, you know. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'll I'll go with what you decide. We, if you want to give them tails, they got tails. They got tails. So they're people, but with tails. Oh, no, I think you're right. Okay. All right. But people with tails. Okay. All right. So we've got people with tails. And so now that we have picked uh, an environment and people with whatever adaptation they have that makes them uh, unique, usually somewhere in this process of world building, we also insert something that I kind of jokingly call element X. Um, And element X is usually the point of utter weirdness at which, you know, you're not in Kansas anymore. Um, Now, granted, the truth is, like, since this world is so different from our own, that is the element X. But you just stuck tails on human beings. So I guess that's also our element X or X2. But but to talk about this in a meta way, it would be like in Black Panther, vibranium is your element X. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to think about it. It's like a... You twist something so the world begins to evolve in a different way. Yeah, the biggest point of divergence from our world because in this case pretty much everything is a divergence. Were you going to say something? No, I was just, I was just thinking about what possible element X's could be. Mm. Well, what, are, what are some just interesting element X's in sci-fi? So as we're mm. doing this, people also get a sense of how this has played out in, in things they've loved before. 
Um, well, let's see. In Dune, uh, I'm thinking of that classic that uh, a lot of folks mm-hmm. have read. First off, it takes place, you know, 10,000 years in the future. Um, so that in, in and of itself is kind of an element X. So a setting can be an element X. A setting can be, time can be. The fact that human beings have effectively evolved a group of people who are capable of transiting space-time. Um, that's the, the Spacers Guild. Granted, that's with the use of, like, extremely psychedelic drugs, but, you know, they're able to do it. Or people who who are able to use uh, various mental powers, that's also an element X. Psionics is what it's always been called in sort of classic science fiction. Got um, it. X-Men mutations would be an element X. Yeah, yeah. So psychic abilities, uh, super strength, or just people who have unique abilities. In The Incredibles, the fact that there are supers is the element X. You know, that's an example. Yeah, as I've done this exercise before, I've actually, um, the, the, the people that have done the workshop have come up with like some of the most bizarre element Xs. Let's see, in one exercise, we ended up with a a sentient Gulf Stream that eats people. Um, <laughs> so there was an ocean current, like the rest of the ocean was perfectly normal, but there was this one ocean current that was like alive and hated you and would eat your ships. So um, people did not spread over this planet quite as easily as they did on ours because they kept getting eaten. And, and they also developed a culture and a mythology around, you know, the evil current. Um, so there was that. Another time I did this exercise, I presented it to a bunch of teenagers right before lunch. And uh, the student that I asked to draw the continents drew them in the shape of 12 identical wedges, just like a pizza. Um, So um, because they were hungry, we ended up with uh, Pizza World. And this of course, is why you don't write sci-fi before lunch. Yeah. Well, no. I mean, we ran with it. Or maybe um, why you do, I guess. Yeah, yeah. What it meant was that the people who evolved on this world, um, you know, kind of once they developed science, knew that their world could not possibly have naturally de- developed like this. One of the things you're bringing to mind for me is I, mm-hmm. I was a fan when I was younger of the Harry Turtledove alternative fiction mm, series. Okay. And uh-huh. in the ones where <laughs> there's a great – I actually have not read it in so long that I don't know if it's great, but mm. it was when I read it. <laughs> uh, there's a, a series where aliens invade Earth during World War II. Oh, so interesting. The, the intervention – and what's so interesting to me about it, uh, thinking about it in, in your framework, is that obviously in terms of Earth, the mm-hmm. element X is aliens coming. Hmm. But for aliens, the mm-hmm. way he does it is that ginger turns out to be a cocaine-like substance for them. <laughs> So Earth includes for, for this alien race uh-huh. a, an addictive drug that begins oh wreaking havoc and so becomes a, a key plot point. Do the allies start lobbing ginger ale at them or what? <laughs> you know, I, I don't remember exactly, but it becomes a lot of trading. It becomes ways that dissension under this uh, – as I remember, again, it's been a very long time mm-hmm. – that this very – well-oiled invasion machine begins to break down uh, where where initially sort of human beings have no chance. Mm -hmm. One of the things that happens is that the interaction with Earth and Ginger particularly Mm. becomes a a way that the alien force itself changes, which then in in turn creates, uh, you know, possibilities for for humans to mount not just a a counter-strike, but um, Mm – 
to begin to create alliances, to create need that the aliens have on them. It, it, I remember it being very interesting, but but it's hmm. interesting the idea of having an element X going in both directions. Hmm. Yeah, that is. Uh, and that's one of the things that's actually really a lot of fun about first contact stories. Um, if they're well rendered, um, then you end up, yeah, you do end up having two element Xs or, or two uh, civilizations reacting to the sudden imposition of an element X. For the sake of this world exercise, usually we're dealing with an element X that's not a sudden intrusion. Usually we're dealing with something that's built into the world and that changes the way that people function in their world versus in our world. So past a certain point, it's no longer an exercise where, actu where we're actually building a people, but we just start talking about how cultures in our world develop. But one of the things that I usually try and kind of focus on is the cultural elements that form the basis of this culture. And those are usually derived from environment or something about this world. So, for example, um, when I'm talking about sociological elements or cultural elements, I'm talking about how does their language develop or what is their religion like? Um, what is it about their sexuality, maybe, that is unique compared to ours? And I usually, as part of the exercise, have the students or the, the people who are involved in the workshop select one to three different elements that we're going to just sort of delve deep into. Why don't we go with one for the sake of this, uh, this talk? So pick a sociological element that you want to kind of dig deep on and we can we can kind of figure out how that's going to shape this culture. So a thing that, that I would imagine in a world like this mm -hmm. is that the coasts would naturally become the seats of power. Mm, that possibly. On, on the one hand, they have more protection. So they, mm -hmm. they are only threatened on one side uh, mm. in the way that um, others are sort of it's a more of a war of all against all. More protection um, and against other cultures? Protection against other cultures' invasion. Mm. They can escape more easily. They can sort of travel more easily because they can board boats and go up and down. Mm. Um, now, uh, I can imagine ways it wouldn't have evolved that way. But mm -hmm. uh, but if I'm, I'm picking away, this one did evolve. So mm -hmm. I imagined that sort of power radiates out of coastal capitals. Possibly. Remember that in our world, land and ocean, neither of those are barriers to um, the spread of a culture. Human beings all over the world, all cultures have come up with boats. Um, so it is entirely possible the people living on the coasts are so harried by pirates or something that they haven't been able to really develop because they're constantly attacked and their culture gets kind of knocked down again and again and again. Um, that's happened in certain parts of our world. Sure. Um, if you want to run with that, we can do that. No, I'm, I'm happy to run with a better one. Well, we're focusing on the folks who live in this desert-like area. So if that's the one you run, want to run with, it doesn't matter. There is no such thing as a better one in this case. <laughs> Any cultural element that is different from our own world is going to make an almost exponential difference in how this world develops versus our own. So if you were thinking about how to twist something mm -hmm. on, on these desert dwellers, how would you mm -hmm. do it? I'm thinking of the fact that they have tails, but um, prehensile tails develop in species on our planet that do climbing. You need them for climbing purposes. And in a desert, there aren't trees. There are, however, rocks. I wonder if they live in cliffs just offhand. And maybe they've built a culture where they've built entire cities into like these giant rock formations. Um, just off the top of my head. That's Would that count as something different enough, though, given that we have cultures that are like that? 
it's different from the culture that is probably going to be reading the book. Yeah. Um, because, you know, there's certainly people who live in cliff dwelling cultures now who may very well be reading science fiction in English coming out of an American publisher. Um, <laughs> uh, it, is, it is entirely possible, thanks to colonization, that, uh, you know, all of these books are available and the Internet. But uh, for right now, that is something that's that's fairly different from the way that our world works. So I was just thinking of that off the top of my head. They they are probably a poor culture compared to the coasts, if you want to run with the idea that the coasts are wealthy and are more powerful in big cities. Um, so the people who live in this this desert are poorer, they are sparse, there's there's fewer of them, but they have incredibly beautiful cities occupying the, the giant rock formations. I love it. Okay. Let's right. go with that. All right, let's run with it. So once we're kind of into how the culture starts to develop, then we start talking about the ways in which that culture is sociologically different from our own. We start talking about syncretism, differentiation, cosmogony, economy. How did that culture get to be the way that it is? And do you want to define a few of those terms? Sure. Syncretism is basically cultures building on what has come before. So, you know, the fact that this culture um, has tales means that at some point in their probably very distant uh, ancestral past, they were used to living in a world with trees or a world with uh things that tails were useful to climb. So maybe their culture, even though they're now living in cliffs, maybe their culture still venerates trees. Maybe it it still is built around the idea of, of what life in a forest is like. They've adapted, but their culture is still going to have elements that are deprecated from, from the time when they lived in forests. So maybe they still... Oh, I don't know. Maybe they still venerate walking very quietly, even though in the desert that kind of doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> but uh, in a forest, it would. And so, you know, they're just incredibly quiet people. Maybe we found our name for them. They are the quiet people. I don't know. Differentiation is is one of the ways in which cultures develop um, kind of in rivalry or in interaction with other cultures. That is, they want to be different from those people over there next door. So this is why in a lot of cases, cultures that develop in the same environment um, next door to each other are so drastically different um, because in a lot of cases, they get their identity from, well, we ain't like those people. Um, and so, you know, and in some cases that does lead to warfare and so forth among very similar people. There's a bunch of different examples that I could throw out here. Cosmogony, where do we come from? How their ideas about where we come from may have developed. Different cultures in our world looked up at the sky and were able to kind of cobble together, you know, how the planets worked and figure out, you know, sort of basic astronomy. And a lot of them used that to develop different mythologies. Um, the Greeks came up with uh, the idea of the gods living in constellations, for example, or um, the constellations telling stories that were, were rooted in their own mythology. Um, that's an example. Um, an economy is exactly what it is in our world. How do they get and distribute resources? So, you know, we might want to actually dig a little deeper into that one. People in a desert who were formerly forest dwellers who are living in a world where they are the poor cousins of big city folk, how do they make their money? How do they survive in this world? So I think the, the question here is, 
do you want to make them traitors or raiders? Hmm. My guess is that they wouldn't last long as raiders because if the people in the big cities have more resources, then they can rapidly develop uh, defenses or abilities uh, against uh, any raiders and eventually fight them off and probably eventually track them into the desert and, and wipe them out. So traitors it is. Traitors it is. <laughs> um, yeah, raiding doesn't work too well once, once you've got uh, an economic disparity between the groups. So one group usually just takes over the other at that point. So let's say traders, what is it that they're getting out of this desert that people in the city would pay top dollar for? Do you have any thoughts on that? So let me think about this for a minute. Or at least pay enough that the people in the desert can survive and make a living. <laughs> well, this is where the problem that I just pulled this out of out of uh, was on my mind immediately <laughs> well, uh, immediately comes up. But let's okay, go so back you, to you have, a, Man, you have a crew, right? You have a crew of people, okay. who are living in unusually high dwellings, um, mm-hmm. who have adapted to an unusually rough environment, mm-hmm. and who, let's say, compared to other cultures, have an unusually communal culture. That, that compared to more individualistic cultures that have developed, cultures that are a little bit more internally trading-based, uh, mm-hmm. if we're going to use the Burning Man build here, mm. they are a culture that is does less trading uh, internally with itself, that is trying to build more things communally, that has, in order to survive in, in very, very difficult conditions, has mm-hmm. developed a more um, almost kibitz-like mm. way of mm-hmm. – Erecting a society, raising children, communicating with one another. Mm-hmm. And so let's say that they are uh, builders and mm-hmm. that while well, I don't know where they get the resources to build, that, that what they're actually trading is their expertise at creating dwellings, dwellings that are unusually well designed mm-hmm. to be transported and mm-hmm. dwellings that are unusually well designed to withstand mm-hmm. harsh climates. Well, you know, that that actually makes me think building into cliffs does require the development of some really complex and advanced uh, architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, for one of my books, I ended up actually going to uh, Canyon de Ch- I'm mutilating the name. Canyon de de Siegi, something like that. It looks like Canyon de Shelley if you kind of render it in its uh, phonetic-looking pronunciation, but it's it's not pronounced like that. It's Canyon de Shea, basically. And it's a little um, valley or, I don't know, canyon in uh, Arizona in the Navajo Nation. Um, And if you go down into it, you can see where the ancient Anasazi had built cliffs a thousand feet above the ground and whole villages were built up there. You saw the architectural techniques that they were using to kind of do this, um, supports and uh, struts and uh, tackles and pulleys um, used at a time when um, basically, you know, we didn't think that civilizations were doing a lot of this advanced uh, architecture and, and construction type stuff. So that makes sense. It follows that the people who come from this culture would have learned some unique uh, building design techniques and would farm that out to people in the cities who are like, hey, we don't know what we're doing. Um, we're still living in huts on stilts because of floods. Maybe you can offer us some some different suggestions or some – maybe you can help us build skyscrapers. That would be one. And then the other mm-hmm. thing that you just made me think of because I've been doing some other work on a journalism project, not mm-hmm. not now a, not now a, a leisure project <laughs> about uh, 
global water crises, mm. which is that a desert culture mm-hmm. would be adapted to less water. Mm-hmm. And so if you imagine, uh, as has happened in, in some of your books that I love, mm. that you're going through a time of geographic stress, mm. of climatological stress, mm-hmm. and so you're going through a drought. Mm. And so perhaps you're dealing with a poor culture mm-hmm. that uh, has traditionally been poor and has traditionally been a little water deprived mm-hmm. and so has managed to survive amidst that. And now – the rest of the world mm. is beginning to deal with somewhat more similar things. Ah, so they're and so selling. some of the techniques that they have developed uh-huh. are all of a sudden in like more water demand. reclamation. Water reclamation, and, uh, yep. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay, all right, that works. So that um, there's knowledge they have. And so mm-hmm. now they're, they're at a moment when perhaps mm-hmm. past poverty and ways of life that were previously looked down on mm. all of a sudden have some value. Well, I mean, that actually requires us to do some world building on the people of the coasts and figure out whether they are they are the kind of culture that would be willing to listen <laughs> to people that they want scorned because we have seen from human history that that does not happen. Um, <laughs> That's a fair point. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm reminded off the, the top of my head of um, there was a period of time where um, Vikings and uh, the Inuit uh, cohabited the same environment. Um, I want to say Greenland. It might be Iceland. I always get those mixed up. It's horrible. But uh, where they were cohabitating uh, on the same land and the Inuit had learned to hunt and eat seal because that was one of the ways to kind of keep their their nutrient level high that, you know, you couldn't grow very much in that environment. Um, and the Vikings just would not eat seal. Now, you know, according to them, the seal tasted bad. I don't blame them for being like, ew, gross. Um, but that said, um, because they would not adapt, um, you know, the Vikings did not last very long in this environment, whereas the Inuit did. They're still there now. Of course, in modern times, everybody's there. Um, but, you know, so so this is an, an example of, you know, kind of in our own world, how you see people who could listen to the locals, could listen to the the indigenous folk on how to live and survive in their land and don't. And we've just not seen a whole lot of evidence of that happening in our society, in our in our world. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. 
Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. To zoom out uh, on this for one second, one sure. thing I hear you do a lot here, and, mm-hmm. and it makes sense um, having read a lot of your work, is mm-hmm. that I'll often suggest something that is very straightforward. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe the coasts have a lot of power or mm-hmm. you know, these people, they haven't had a lot of water, so mm-hmm. they know how to work without a lot of water, but all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And it has often seemed to me in your work that there is a darker view of human nature and the way human societies interact. Um, it seems mm-hmm. that, that the, the work has often dealt with the question of do societies become so unjust they almost can't be redeemed? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that one of the questions that that raises, which is probably a more realistic way of, of thinking about how societies evolve, is it often seems like when you're thinking of how a world would design itself, how a society would run itself, mm-hmm. that things would run straightforwardly as if it was being designed <laughs> by an engineer. Mm. But the question of how worlds actually build themselves is, mm-hmm. is cultural and, and really mm-hmm. based around going back to things you said a couple minutes ago about differentiation, um, mm. that, that actually the organizing principles are about how the culture is thought about themselves. And that yeah. creates a very, very different set of downstream mm-hmm. adaptations or lack of adaptations to your point about the Vikings. <laughs> well, I mean, the the thing that you have to do in order to world build well is understand how our world works. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily a dark view of human nature. I think it's uh, a view of human nature that's informed by actual history. And the, the sad and honest truth is that our history is full of people being awful to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, also, our history is full of people being great to each other. So, so I try to depict both. But when you're when you're talking about societies and how societies develop, you do always have to understand that human societies are not logical. <laughs> they but that don't... seems like such a big point. <laughs> Yes, you you have to understand that the 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 dynamics that dictate how we do things are not a simple matter of hey those people over there have a great idea why don't we borrow that or why don't we talk to them and get their expertise you're dealing with power dynamics you're dealing with egos you're dealing with um, you know psychology and sociology and all the aspects of human nature. And so it's important to understand when you are doing world building, it's important to understand the sciences. It's important to understand both the physical sciences of how our world works and the social sciences of how people work. Because, you know, like I said, the world that our people, that, that your readers know best is our world. So you, you've got fantastic research available to you if you want to explore it on how people have done um, in our world these exact same things. So there's no reason to, uh, you know, just kind of, you know, make assumptions or, or pull things out of whole cloth. We've got the entirety of human history to draw from for examples of, of how people react when they see another culture doing something that might be a good idea. And frequently they dig in their heels and decide we're not going to do it because that's that's coming from those people over there and, and they don't know anything and they're stupid and, you know, that kind of thing. The the other possibility there that, that, that seems 
now more evident to me mm-hmm. is that what I said was that their status would raise and their prospects would raise mm-hmm. by having something other people wanted. Mm-hmm. A probably more realistic way of putting that is that their threat would raise yeah. by having something other people wanted. Yeah, yeah, and they would be in danger. Actually. And they would be in more danger. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's very likely. I actually thought about that, but I was like, uh, let's keep this brief. <laughs> um, well, I mean, okay, so one of the elements that I usually cover in this world-building workshop, once we get to the, the cultural level, we're starting to go into what I call micro-world building, i.e. The, the way that the people develop um, or the way that the culture develops in which the story takes place. Um, and one of the things that you have to figure out is what the power dynamics are going to be like. So when we're talking about power in in the sociological sense, um, we're talking about the ability to control other people. That's really what that means, sometimes in subtle ways. You know, we're talking about, uh, you know, the power to coerce other people or to force other people to do something. But with impunity on your part, you can hurt those people and you won't get punished by your, your government for doing so, that kind of thing. You know, also, you start to think about, um, like, in our world, who is the default? Who is who is considered normal? Um, who is treated as marginalized or who is treated as abnormal? You know, we also spend some time in the workshop talking about who's got power over time, like talk time. There have been a number of studies that have kind of come to light in the last few years or so where we've got all this this common wisdom in our society that women talk too much. Women just will talk your ear off. But when actual studies of who dominates conversations have been kind of reviewed, um, it's clear that men are the ones who are doing like like two-thirds of the talking um, and that women are perceived as talking too much when they're actually only talking maybe like 25 to 30 percent of the time. And that's just our particular cultural dynamics. Uh, we are a patriarchal society. We react badly, uh, men and women, all genders, react badly when when women talk versus when men talk. Um, and so it, it changes our perception of reality. And um, we literally don't realize that people who are, who are speaking less than 50% of the time are actually not dominating the conversation. So, so we have to kind of be aware of how power works in our own society and depict these mechanisms of power, these power dynamics or how power dynamics typically work in our created society as well. So, I, I really like the way you put all that. And, and one of the things that uh, I think about in your books is that what's often interesting is that you portray societies where people who have power mm-hmm. are subjugated. Um, well, I mean, what do you mean by power? So right, um, people yeah. who have what one would what mm-hmm. one would naturally think of as it's a very good point. So people yeah. who have the ability to summon mm-hmm. physical force, yeah. Um, you know, I actually don't know how to pronounce it. Orogenies, <laughs> orogeny, orogenies. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Who can cause massive geological fluctuation, or in the inheritance trilogy, gods mm-hmm. are in different ways held captive. So you're mm-hmm. right. They don't have power, right? Power is the thing they don't have well, even as there's a, a kind of a potentiality within them that, mm-hmm. again, in a in a less subtle rendering of the world, mm-hmm. um, you would say, oh, these are the individuals or creatures or whatever on top. Mm. Well, remember that we're talking about sociological power versus, right. uh, I don't know, force. Yeah. Um, so sociological power can – 
level or imbalance the ground between groups that have um, physical power. And this is not a thing that is unusual or surprising. I mean, because again, we've got the whole of human history to kind of look at. Um, we've got societies that have been dominated by a minority before. Um, we've, and we've, still do. And still do. Um, you know, so we've, we've seen how this mechanism works on our own world, where you've got a vast population of people who, if they just threw themselves at their oppressors enough, they would be free. But, you know, the sociological mechanisms can level that ground, can make up for the sheer numbers of people. Um, and it's not necessarily a good thing. I'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing. I think it's a bad thing in our own world. But it's how power works. It's how power defends itself. You know, how we we set up a society in which you've got self-perpetuating systems of people who – are being oppressed, are told again and again that they're supposed to be oppressed, that it's a good thing that they're being oppressed. They internalize that and they eventually start to reinforce um, that same system within themselves. And so we've seen this happen again and again in our own world. And again, we need to understand how our world works if we're going to be rendering this in another world. So yeah, in the Broken Earth trilogy, you've got people who have uh, the ability to literally move mountains. But there aren't very many of them. And one of the things that the the other people, the people who do not have the ability to move mountains, um, have figured out to do is to grab these folks while they're young. Kill them if they're found when they're older. But, you know, when you, when you find them young, take them to a place where they can be basically indoctrinated with the idea that their role is to serve, that they are living on the sufferance of their betters, that they are inherently harmful, evil, flawed, bad people, and that only by the sufferance of their betters should they be allowed to function because otherwise they're a threat to all that exists. And when you tell people stuff like this, especially from a young age, when you tell people this again and again and again, um, it's brainwashing. It's the same technique that works with, you know, marketing, um, just less, less overtly harmful. And so, you know, human minds are susceptible to manipulation just like this. Human societies are susceptible to manipulation on this level. I um, mean, this is just one of the things that I try and, and, and get across. So how would you think about displaying power in this society we're creating? Mm. My guess is that if the, the people in the cities are starting to have a water crisis, um, this is just pulled off the top of my head, and they have nothing but contempt for the desert dwellers who know how to survive with water, the people in the cities will become more profligate in their abuse of water. Um, they will form a culture that uh, around basically flouting how much water they've got, even if it's not much and even if it's dwindling. And they will, they will waste it more on purpose just to kind of stick it to those people in the desert. Or just to kind of, you know, remind themselves that they're more powerful, they're better people, they're awesome. So, you know, we can do this. We can we can use up this water and, you know, oh well, sucks to be we don't believe that that we're gonna run out of water. They're they're probably gonna tell themselves that. You know, just like in our world, people um, tell themselves that there's no need to do anything about climate change. You know, God is is going to save us from climate change. God sent us scientists, so I don't know why we aren't doing anything about that. But <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> There's another thing you make me think of, mm. which is I'm Californian. Mm -hmm. And we have gone through in recent years some terrible droughts. Mm. And one of the ways I noticed that being – I don't – 
think managed is the correct word, but messaged is maybe the correct word, Mm -hmm. is that a lot of usages of water Mm. that people broadly had to do and and particularly that that were spread across society – pushed on. Um, so mm. getting free water at restaurants, mm. right, which is certainly more important if you're low income than, than if you're high income. Right. That became something that uh, I don't uh, want to say frowned upon, but, but but it became questioned. Right. And, you know, how long should your showers really yeah. be? Yeah. But uh, that's not the thing that's causing. But that's not the thing. We have exactly. massive agricultural use, right. much of which is very wasteful. We right. have lawns. We have golf courses. We mm-hmm. have pools. We have fountains. Mm-hmm. It seemed to me, watching the way people talked about it, mm-hmm. there was a constant effort to stigmatize um, uses of water that were that mm-hmm. were very common and not that big of a deal. And there was also a very big effort um, among um, businesses mm-hmm. to try to make people pay for water that that they were using in small ways. Um, yeah. You saw it in hotels, you saw it in restaurants, mm-hmm. you saw it in you know when you're washing your hands or when you're you know doing things just humans need to do. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the questions of industrial use, mm-hmm. the things that actually made people rich off of water. Mm-hmm. Those were protected yeah. um, and, and certainly not questioned. Yeah. So I, I do wonder in a world like this, if you wouldn't begin to see a backlash amongst or a, just a lash um, towards usages of water yeah. that were more essential yeah. as people tried to protect the usages of water that mm-hmm. were the things that gave them power. Well, my guess is that the people of the cities would start blaming the desert dwellers for the the dwindling water resources, among other things. Yeah, that is how our power dynamics tend to work. People with power immediately want to deflect or project um, their own misuses uh, onto other people so that they can continue to live the way that they want without making changes, um, even if they are actually the the people that are kind of the, the core of the problem. Um, but they've got the power to deflect, and so they do. This is a thing that we see over and over again in our world. And yes, it, if you depict it in this fictional world, your audience will understand exactly why it happens because they're used to it, because they see it, because they get that that is how societies work. So so perhaps mm-hmm. the idea of just living in the desert at all, mm-hmm. having a society in the desert at all mm. becomes stigmatized, becomes something that people begin turning ire on. Mm. Well, then in that case, you're, you're potentially facing the displacement of this group of people, right. possibly forcible displacement of this group of people, even though these people are, are capable of surviving in the desert just fine, you know, the, the society's wrath would indeed focus on that. I think you're completely right there. So, so perhaps is, that's, a, that's a power dynamic we're beginning to see in this world. Yeah. So I usually then with the workshop, um, now that we've kind of figured out the power dynamics, um, we then start focusing more on, you know, again, assuming that we're going to be focusing on the desert society, what that society is structured uh, or how that society is structured. We, we focus on uh, their roles within society like family roles, gender roles, how their socioeconomic status system works, what their careers are like. We focus on, you know, kind of how their power dynamics manifest within the society. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, they've probably got a little bit more collective, um, communal way of doing things. So we'd need to work out how that functions. We'd need to work out things like, for example, uh, what are their standards of beauty? If they don't, 
if they don't wash uh, with water, let's say they do dust washing, um, which is a perfectly valid thing and it's perfectly clean and healthy. It's what a lot of desert societies do. Um, but let's say they do dust washing. Um, and so, you know, maybe looking like you've got supple, wet skin is not a thing in their society. Um, maybe having kind of leathery, sun-damaged, slightly skin feels normal for them. And now, granted, you know, we should also talk about, like, um, we would have talked already about, you know, kind of how they develop, what their skin color is. We noticed that in our own world, for example, people with darker skin tend to be more resistant to UV radiation. Therefore, they don't uh, develop uh, wrinkles as easily, that kind of thing, um, as we call it, black don't crack in our world. Um, and so maybe their their standard of beauty is is um, built around you know how well does your face resist sunlight <laughs> um, uh, you know for example we would talk about what lower status people in the society do and what their their lives are, are like um, we would talk also about you know what does it look like to defy your status in this society. You know, we've got people in our world, for example, who will will often attempt to defy the social order by doing the very same thing that higher status people can get away with, but normally lower status people can't. So I was just kind of thinking off the top of my head of manspreading, <laughs> um, which is a thing here in, in New York. So in a lot of cases, you'll see guys will come on the subway, man spreading for people that don't know, um, is usually men will come on the subway, will sit down with their legs splayed out really widely um, and take up as much space on the seat as possible, which makes it difficult for other people to sit down. And so, you know, we've started seeing the phenomenon of woman spreading. And the woman spreading is basically a defiance of, of our patriarchal society. We see women come in, flop down next to a guy and immediately start having like leg war with him. Um, where he starts to spread, she spreads right back. Um, and so that is a, a defiance of, you know, it's, it's a minor defiance, but it's an, a little example of the ways in which uh, people do things. As Gandhi said, a, a spread for a spread leaves the whole subway full. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> yeah. Leaves people unable to sit down. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. And, and nobody's happy then. Um, <laughs> yeah, th that never ends well. But, you know, on the other hand, uh, you can't let them get away with it. So you've got to do something. Um, so once you've kind of figured out the roles and how the power dynamics work in this world, then you can actually start getting into the characterization of the, the particular person you're going to focus on in the society and what it is that they're dealing with. And then you can come up with a plot and all that. But the world building exercise, remember, is not writing. The world building exercise is what you do before you write. So once you've got all of these basics in place, then you can proceed. But that's basically how we do it. So first, I want to thank you for for doing that exercise with me with us. That was such a <laughs> that was such one a pleasure and and such a, a wonderful geek out for me. But it's also so fascinating to see the way you do that. Oh, thank you. How how do you learn how to world build? <laughs> because uh, you know, it's not a pure act of imagination. It's something very watching you do that. It's something mm, very different. Mm. I mean, that's that's how I world build. People who become writers usually study other writers' techniques. You can find other writers out there who will put together books of, like, how to do world building or um, 
this is how I do world building. And and every writer kind of comes up with this, syncretizes. Um, every writer comes up with their own uh, idea of how they want to do this. For me, because I read a lot of nonfiction for fun, I read a lot of books like uh, Jared Diamond's books, uh, you know, Collapse and uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel. Um, there are many critiques of those books, um, but they're interesting uh, exercises in kind of understanding how our world came to be what it is. I read a lot of history for fun. Yes, I am that kind of nerd. Um, so, you know, and and in my day job life, I was a psychologist. So I have an interest in how societies develop, how human minds and, and behavior develops. And these are things that are just exciting to me. And therefore, my world building techniques center around how did our world build? Therefore, we, we can look at um, how another world might function along the same lines. But that's just how I do it. That doesn't mean it's the only one true way. One of the interesting things in the, in the way I saw you doing that is that it seemed to me that in order to world build, mm-hmm. that what you had done is first created a very sophisticated model of how our world actually works, mm-hmm. which is something that I'm, I'm not sure people even realize whether or not they always have mm-hmm. or, or maybe they do always have, but they don't always realize that they have it, right, mm-hmm. what its assumptions are. Mm-hmm. But when people build the climate models that, that spit out what might happen if you change, you know, the up to four degrees or you change how quickly oceans acidify, mm-hmm. what they're creating is a model of how our world works that they mm-hmm. then – can begin to change parameters up. And and what it seems to me that you've actually done is create a much more sophisticated and visible to yourself model than most people have of how you believe our world works. So -hmm. that every time I offered a – an alteration – Mm-hmm. that you understood what it did in your model much more mm-hmm. quickly than I understood what it did in my model. Hmm. Well, I, I mean, my suspicion is that if you were the kind of nerd that I was and sat around <laughs> reading about how do deserts do, um, you know, how do mountains, um, this, is, this is the kind of thing that excites me. That is, you know, I actually, you know, go grab a book on orogeny, which is the science of mountain formation, actually. I just mangled it into a magic term. But, you know, one of the most exciting things that I can do is, like, go study a volcano. And I follow uh, a lot of earth science accounts on Twitter and things like that. Um, But for me, that is the most interesting aspect of world building is, yes, having that model in my head, tweaking aspects of that model and using the comparison to our world to figure out how it might work in this world. I believe it's kind of a necessity for science fiction writers to understand humanity um, and our planet and our our physical world as well as our sociological world. Um, That is the basis of science fiction. Um, It's also one of the bases of fantasy. It's just, you know, less acknowledged. But it's one of the bases of science fiction that, you know, you're, you're focusing on how does science impact human life and how does it impact the stories and the people that, that we're going to be trying to tell. It's just that I don't confine it to the physical sciences. I'm interested in, you know, sociology, anthropology, all of these things, too. So, Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. 
and kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God, but I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. You know, when I came into this conversation, my my thought was it's so exciting to to talk to somebody who does something so different than what I do. <laughs> and one of the things I'm I'm so f- interested to to realize is that it's actually it's a really lot more not. similar. Yeah. Um. One of my critiques of a lot of journalism is that political journalism, I should say, and, and punditry, mm-hmm. is that we are under theorized. Mm. That we either think in models, but we don't share those models with the audience. Mm. We're not saying to people, okay, here is the framework of what we're looking at and why we think what's going to happen is going to happen. Or we don't Mm -hmm. realize that we're thinking in models. Uh, So for a long time, when I entered journalism, I Mm. I always think that there's a tendency for political pundits. They – see something happening in their 20s and 30s mm-hmm. and they get very stuck on how things were then. Uh, so there was this constant belief that, you know, if only things would return to, to the great cooperation of Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan. <laughs> and like it was this endless trope in journalism and it was so frustrating to those of us who came in when mm. everything was already polarized. And right. I always worry with myself now that things are going to change or maybe already have mm. and I'm going to be stuck in sort of <laughs> you know 2005 to 2015. Mm. But it, it seems to me to be such an important thing in life to know what your model actually is and and to be able to see it well enough to see if it's begun to fail you and so how you need to alter it. But but I really think thinking in models is something we don't teach well, we don't talk about well, but it's something we're we're always doing. And if we don't realize we're doing it, then Mm. we don't realize how to either apply rigor to it or how Mm -hmm. to discipline it or how to even realize a way it could lead us astray. Well, I mean, that's actually something that comes out of, uh, for me, uh, anti-racist training and anti-oppression training in general. But, you know, one of the ways in which you start to understand how our society works is to understand your own contribution to whatever system exists. And that means you need to understand yourself. You need to acknowledge or or just kind of recognize um, where you fit within the various hierarchies that dominate our lives. You know, you need to understand your own status. You need to understand the, the, the power that it gives you over other people, the ways in which you may have unconsciously exerted that power or perpetuated uh, uh, systems or, or, or perpetuated oppressive things on other people without realizing that that's what you were doing. Um, and if you want to improve the world, you need to understand how the world actually works. You need to understand your own contribution to those things. So, you know, that's that's really the same framework, I guess, or the same, the same way of thinking about uh, fiction. If you are going to depict various societies, 
um, societies that differ from our own in terms of the environments that they're in or the politics, but that still contain human beings whose mind func- minds function the way that human beings do and whose societies function the way human societies have functioned in our own world, then we need to understand um, how our world got to be the way that it is. And I think that that's an absolute necessity for anybody that's going to be writing uh, fantasy or science fiction that's that's set in a different place or even set in our own world. It is an element of good writing to make sure that you are getting the world right and the people right. And that's a thing. But it also seems to me to be an element of, of just good uh, of good analysis, something I hear mm-hmm. I hear in what you're saying there. Mm-hmm. It seems to me when I watch a lot of the debates going on in in politics and mm-hmm. in culture right now, that there is often a collision hmm. between people who have been inside a system they have benefited from mm-hmm. and so do not believe it is a system. <laughs> do not see it as a system. Just see it as the way things are. Yeah. See it as the way as the right the, way to do things, right? The right way to do things, mm-hmm. tradition, the outcome of uh, natural causes mm-hmm. in, in different ways, mm. versus people who have often not benefited from it. Not in every case, right? Often people do work to try to understand the. The I'm generalizing somewhat here, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but but I do think a lot of that work starts with people who have been outside of the system and mm. have had to understand what the system actually is. Mm-hmm. What are the parts of it that they are inside? What are the parts of it that they are outside? Yeah. And a tremendous amount of the debates that I watch going on right now are actually about whether to understand something as a contingent system erected by people to, in mm. order to um, affect certain outcomes versus mm-hmm. – Oh, that's just the way the way things are. And if, you know, you're not succeeding in it, well, you know, that's the meritocracy. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, it comes back to what we were saying about how how societies frequently choose not to listen to the people that they don't respect. We are a society that is multiply hierarchical. I don't want to get into um, deep sociological terms like kyriarchy and so forth, but um, that that is hierarchical in ways that intersect with each other and and uh, impact each other in in ways that a lot of us are not willing to lo- listen to or look at um, because that is a, a means of diminishing our own power. And it's a thing that we don't necessarily, you know, a lot of us aren't willing or capable of doing. As we start to understand how um, our own privilege impacts the ways in which we interact with other people, then we can modify our behavior. But if we don't have any vested reason to try and give up that privilege, or if we're we're told that, you know, giving up that privilege is somehow a loss um, or somehow harmful, then, you know, we're not going to do that. And this is kind of one of the things, one of the reasons why I do this workshop. A lot of the people who are writing science fiction and fantasy don't yet understand how performative a lot of what we do is, how it's not just performative, but it's defensive. And a lot of the things that we think of as natural in our society are a defense mechanism meant to protect us against people that we perceive as coming to take our our power and our privilege. And so if you introduce writers to the idea that everything that develops in a society has developed for a reason, it's not just natural, human behavior is learned, societies are developed, Um, none of this stuff just happens. 
then that makes those writers more conscious and more capable of depicting not just a secondary world, but even our world. It, it makes them better at analyzing human behavior. That's the purpose of the workshop is, is helping people understand why why people, <laughs> um, for lack of a better term. And I, I can see why that would be valuable for journalists as well. I'm surprised to hear that there isn't any kind of dedicated training um, to that effect. Um, psychologists do this. So maybe you guys need to come to psych school. I don't know. There, there, are, there are a lot of schools we could benefit from coming to <laughs> for a little while. Uh, something else that, that I've been thinking about in your presentation that, mm. that we sort of worked off of here and, the, and that I read beforehand was this idea of experiential learning versus didactic learning. Mm. And you have this wonderful recommendation that you should increase immersion as difference increases. <laughs> that, that the further you get away mm. from what people are used to, mm -hmm. the better off you are trying to help them experience it, just live through it, mm. as opposed to just telling them how it is. And and mm -hmm. on the one hand, I think that, that we sort of use that principle interestingly in, in this podcast. This is quite mm. different than what we normally do. Mm. And we did it through immersion. And, and now <laughs> it, it turns out there's a lot of uh, common ground. Um, mm. So I enjoy that immensely. But I'm also just fascinated about that as a principle, both for these questions of science fiction, but mm. also of journalism, of anti-racism training, of, mm. of all these different things that mm -hmm. as you're trying to make people understand – uh, ideas or ways of looking at systems that are, that are quite alien to them. Mm -hmm. So much of the way I think we go as things become further divided is we go towards more didacticism, if I'm mm -hmm. saying that right. We, we become more uh, declarative, right? Mm -hmm. No, you don't understand. It's like this, not like that. Right. Versus right, right. more immersive because on more the one hand, it's very to hard to become empathy. immersive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But also just more willing to try to I don't know that willing is the right word here, mm. but as a principle, the idea that the further something is from somebody's life experience, mm -hmm. the more you have to help them understand how it is to live it, not tell them mm. how it is to be lived. Mm. I think that's a very interesting insight that, that you have here about world building, but, mm -hmm. but certainly seems to me to be true about other things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think – it's not just the more you have to do to help them understand it, the more they will be un incapable of understanding it. Um, you know, if you don't experience some things yourself directly, there's always going to be a gap. Um, you're never going to be able to fully get whatever's happening in that other alien space or that other alien culture. You can approximate, you can come close, you can attempt, you can be willing to try, and that may make a difference as well. I talk a lot about travel and, and the fact that, you know, my own understanding of the world has been shaped not just by reading books but by actually traveling because my father um, loved to go to other countries and would just kind of drag me along with him even when I was fairly young. And I know that this is a thing that not a lot of Americans get to do. You know, and it's it's not a thing that everyone can do. It's, you know, financially, there's there's some barriers there. Although my dad was a, you know, poor artist and he found ways to make it work. But, um, you know, there's so many examples of little interactions that suddenly illuminate just completely different ways of thinking. I always sort of tell the story of how I went to Italy a few years ago. And uh, we were we were staying in, you know, this is before Airbnb, but we were staying in a little cottage on an olive farm um, for a few days. And uh, the, the family that was renting the cottage to us uh, came to pick us up and we were just kind of chatting. And, uh, you know, when we introduced ourselves, 
they asked us, you know, so, so who are you? And we all introduced ourselves by saying, you know, our names and what we did for a living. Hi, I'm, I'm Nora. I'm a writer. You know, my father was an artist, you know, so we all introduced ourselves by profession. And the Italian people immediately introduced themselves by saying, I'm from this area. I've lived here all my life. Or I'm from Milan and my people are blah, blah, blah. You know, and so they all talked about their affiliations. No one mentioned a profession. And it was much later that I understood that Americans introduced themselves by profession as a means of kind of assessing each other's socioeconomic status right off the bat. We are such a capitalistic, um, sociologically oriented culture, I'm sorry, uh, caste oriented culture, for lack of a better description, um, that what we want to do right off the bat is figure out who is worth listening to, who is important enough to merit respect, and who isn't. And that is one of the reasons why we introduce our professions before we introduce any of the other sociological bindings that we might possibly choose to do. And that's just an element of our culture. And it's it's an element of our culture that's got some really kind of messed up roots when you think about that. Um, we assess each other by visuals, but also we, we try and assess those non-visuals by that introduction of, of profession. Um, and so just that simple exchange suddenly illuminated aspects of American culture to me that that had just seemed natural. It just seemed like the thing to do. Um, you know, when you introduce yourself, where you're from doesn't matter, but what you do does. And so little things like that, uh, when, when you start to immerse yourself in another culture just enough um, you're not going to be able to completely immerse because you're not part of that culture. But if you immerse yourself, if you even like sort of dip a toe in that other culture, you're going to suddenly understand a lot more about your own. Um, and I think that's a thing that, that yeah, lots of professions could use. So. That is such a gutting insight. <laughs> <laughs> is it? Yeah. So I, I live in Washington, D.C. Uh -huh. And people complain here all the time or people come here complain hmm. that uh, you were saying this about America, but I, but it's particularly – at least from what people tell me true here, that mm -hmm. you meet people and they very quickly say, what do you do? Hmm. And I've always been a, a defender of that question mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, when I hear that, uh, I say, well, look, like you've got to ask a follow-up to hello. Mm. <laughs> you got you to figure out something. Mm -hmm. And people spend roughly eight hours sleeping. <laughs> they spend eight hours at work and uh -huh. they spend, you know, then the rest of it is like some combination of household tasks and mm. leisure and, you know. So right. why not try the biggest chunk first, mm -hmm. uh, which always made a lot of sense to me. Mm. Um, but my guess is that you're probably right about what that's really doing mm -hmm. as opposed to me being right about what that's really doing. <laughs> and and as such, it's playing a role not mm -hmm. of information gathering mm -hmm. but of Hierarchializing. Uh, sorting. Yeah, sorting. That's a good – thank you. That's a much easier word to say. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean that's the whole point of it is is you know we we are a caste society. I never thought of us as a caste system um until I kind of studied enough history and realized we're exactly like any other society in this world that uh, we we've named a caste society. We just don't call ourselves that. Um until about what 50 60 years ago um we had the Jim Crow system which was a caste system based on race. Um we are beginning to 
try and fight uh, the legacy of our caste system based on gender, where women don't get paid as much um, and, and are effectively barred from certain professions and so on. And, and uh, other genders as well are, you know, men are, they struggle to get into certain professions these days as well if they want to. And their struggles are not just, um, you know, structural, but also uh, reinforced by other men who would tease them or, or um, you know, mistreat them if they choose to go into those professions. So, yeah, I mean, we are a caste system. And in a caste system, it is crucially important for people to figure out quickly when they are meeting a stranger where they fit into the caste system. And that is one of the ways in which we do it. We never admit that that, that we're a caste system. We don't just come up and say, hey, you're of the white guy caste and, you know, I'm of the black women caste and blah, blah, blah. We don't we don't do it that way. We, we obfuscate it with lots of uh, lots of performative stuff. But, you know, that's effectively what we're doing. So, so to the point you've made in different ways throughout this discussion, which is that we are all an expert mm. on the, the world in which we grew up, the mm-hmm. country, the land. Um, but the flip of that is we are all quite limited by the world in which we grew mm-hmm. up. It's hard to imagine um, a, a society that would emerge within a gaseous star, but it's also just <laughs> ima- hard to imagine how Italy works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how how does – Doing all this work world building, having built now many, many worlds, having helped other people build all these different worlds, Mm. how does that change or how has it changed over time what you see in your immediate world? Does what does that do to to the lens on which you uh, turn on your own society? Hmm. I am definitely a lot more aware of sort of the provenance of these these weird little rituals that we inflict on each other. Um, and I'm aware of the fact that they are rituals, that they are performances that are designed to do a particular thing. And I'm less patient with those rituals um, because I know it's kind of like, you know, performance. You know, so I think that that probably impacts how I relate with other people. Um, I don't know how I come across to other people, um, but – as I guess as uh, I've gotten more known or or my books have become more popular, I've gone into um, into public spaces where I've met people who will will introduce themselves to me and they're shaking and they're like, you know, I you know I I've always loved your books and I'm I'm so excited I'm so nervous and freaked out by the chance to meet you and I'm like, wait wait okay so slow down, um, you know first of all let's 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 analyze why are you um, treating me in this sort of worshipful fashion? Um, you know, who told you that published authors were were on this this higher caste than you? And why are you deferring to that caste designation? Um, you know, it, like I don't have that conversation with people, but I'm more aware of the fact that, you know, that nervousness is something that our society encourages in subtle ways. And that there's a problem with it, um, that that nervousness and that tendency to treat people who you perceive as being of a different social status or higher social status, that tendency to treat those people as as beyond reproach and beyond um, something as, as gauche or minimal as like having a, a simple basic conversation, um, you know, shaking somebody's hand and talking to them like a human being, I'm more aware of the fact that that's just – crap now. It's just, it's nothing. And I find myself just constantly impatient with it. And I have to remember, I was still raised, you know, as a Southern woman. 
So I still, you know, have kind of knee-jerk uh, things that I still do. But I also have to remember that not everybody thinks of it as performance. Some people think of it as, you know, the way that you're supposed to be. And revealing the performance for writers is a necessity for them because you've got to be able to see behind the curtain in order to write the curtain. So for writers, they don't have the luxury of living with the performance or just the mask over a thing. You've got to understand the inner workings of people. Um, but, you know, in everyday life, I understand that not everybody does that. Um, I kind of feel like more of us should. I wish that more of us would. But, you know, I'm still renegotiating how I relate with society and with other people these days. Well, not not to fall into all the traps you just mentioned, but this has honestly <laughs> been one of the most thrilling and fun and mind-expanding uh, conversations I've had on this podcast. So well, thank I'm you. very, very grateful for it, for for the work you've done, which I've always enjoyed. And and I want to ask you the, the question we always used to end the conversation, which is, <laughs> what are three books that, that you would recommend to the audience? Oi, um, I have difficulty recommending books. Um <laughs> Um, I'm a giant fan of Martha Wells' books. Uh, she's got a new uh, novella coming out in the Murderbot series <laughs> um, soon. Uh, the Murderbot books are this this adorable little set of um, kind of almost old school science fiction um, set in the future about uh, people exploring other worlds with a, an artificial human, basically a part robotic, part. I don't know what to call him. Uh, I'm sorry, it. Murderbot has no gender and does not want a gender. And Murderbot basically is a is a bot that was designed to serve human beings, but that has hacked itself and, and made itself free and really just wants to sit around watching soap operas all the time and, you know, is saving people and, you know, saving the galaxy from itself. But really, it just wants the free time to sit around and watch the latest episode of whatever show that it's, it's downloaded. <laughs> so I love that series. Um, I just finished reading Octavia Butler's um, Unexpected Stories, um, which is a, available as a ebook, I believe. Two stories that were found uh, posthumously. Um, one that would have been in uh, Harlan, the now also late, uh, Harlan Ellison's Last Dangerous Visions 2 or 3. And so that story has been finally published and another story of hers got unearthed. And so I finally got a chance to catch up on those. Um... You know, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I'm sorry. The, Only those, two of three. Those two are great. In those okay. <laughs> um, Nora, uh, thank you. Uh, I really, really enjoyed this. And um, everybody should read your books and <laughs> build some worlds. And uh, I really, really am grateful for you taking the time and being willing to do this experiment with me. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you to Nora Jemison for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're doing your podcast listening. It really does help. Thank you to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, my engineer, Griffin Tanner. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back in a couple of days. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.